0: Lord, we ask for help this morning as we come to another section of your word. Lord, something new for most of us, a passage that seems a little bit unusual, and yet Lord is shouting at us to pay attention because, Lord, your grace is on display here. And I ask that our hearts and minds would be teachable, that you would Allow us, Lord, to to see what it is that you desire for us to to glean from this passage that would change us or conform us to be like your son Jesus Christ or to hope in um, your son Jesus Christ, Lord, in a way that would demonstrate either uh, a new life in him, uh, Lord, or a life that is flowing from that new relationship with him. Lord, allow me to be your messenger. Strengthen me. Uh, Lord, I ask that my words would reflect um, your heart desire in this passage and that as a result, Lord, your people will grow. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Can you imagine waking up one morning to find out that you have a long-lost relative who has died And as a result of their death, when they read the will, you have been named as the um, beneficiary of their inheritance, $10 million. Well, on December 2nd, 2009, this is what was written in the London Telegraph. The title of this article is, Brothers Living in Cave to Inherit Billions from Lost Grandmother." Two penniless brothers who live in a cave outside of Budapest are to inherit most of a reported four billion after an astonishing twist in their family's fortunes. Zolt and Geza Pelati have no fixed address and eke out an existence by selling junk they find on the street. But their scavenging days are about to be over. The brothers have been informed that they are entitled, to their long-lost grandmother's fortune, along with a sister who lives in America. Charity workers in Hungary broke the news to them after being contracted by lawyers handling the estate of their uh, maternal grandmother, who died recently in Baden-Württemberg, Germany. We knew our mother came from a wealthy family, but she was a difficult person. And severed ties with, with us, and then later abandoned us, and we lost touch with her and our father until she eventually died. That's what Geza Palati, a 43-year-old, told the television news crew. Under German law, direct descendants are automatically entitled to uh, to a share of any estate. As the grandmother's daughter is dead, the money goes to her grandchildren. If this all works out, it will certainly make up for the life we have had until now. All we really had was each other. No woman would look at us living in a cave. But maybe with money we can find a partner and finally have a normal life. We don't know yet if she even told our grandmother about us. I understand it was only a while, or it was only while they were carrying out a, a genealogical research that lawyers found we existed. Gulia, Balaz, Cesar, a volunteer working for Budapest Maltese Charity Service said, we were contacted by a lawyer asking us to find the brothers. He claimed he could help their lives with a large sum of money. The grandmother's name has been kept secret to prevent fraudsters trying to cash in on the inheritance. A spokesman for the lawyers handling the case said, we know who we need to speak to, and that is the two brothers who will who we are pretty sure are the grandchildren. There is no need for anyone else to be informed. The brothers are currently seeking copies of their mother's death certificate and proof of their identity and family connections as their rightful heirs before traveling to Germany to claim the fortune." Then it goes on and says, "'Last month, a student from Moldova inherited nearly a billion euros from a long-lost relative, Sergei Sudev, uh, Sudev, was left the fortune by an uncle He had not seen for 10 years. Now, if we're honest, we're listening to that story and we're somewhat jealous. We're actually thinking, is there anyone that's a long-lost relative in my family that somewhere along the way showed me some kindness and in that moment of desperation put my name in that will? Um, That's what we're hoping for. But can you imagine one day um, seeing the, the, the mail carrier walk up to your driveway with a certified registered letter from some lawyers that are asking you to come to a meeting because they have some good news to share with you. Now, I'm not talking about an email that goes into your spam. I'm talking about something that comes in official, you know, documented ways. And you go to that meeting and to find out that you're entitled to $10 million. Now, if the lawyers knew about you and said nothing, That would be wrong and dishonest on their part. But if the lawyers sought you out to tell you the truth, it would be a kindness that you would greatly appreciate. Now, friends, 2 Samuel 9 is all about kindness. I don't know if you caught that as you read this passage. It's all about, ultimately, the kindness of our covenant king. Kindness um, is a word that is used three times in our passage. Look at verse 1, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Or in verse 3, that I may show the kindness of God to him. Or verse 7, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. This is David speaking. And he's wanting to show kindness. And this is a word that has often been translated loving kindness and is the Hebrew word hesed. It is, uh, the, the considered, or is considered in the Jewish culture to be the highest virtue. So Dale Davis defines hesed as a love that is willing to commit itself to another by making its promise a matter of solemn record. In other words, it's a covenant that's sealed with a document or a ceremony. It also refers to extraordinary acts of kindness, whereby one meets an extreme need outside the normal run of perceived duty or arising from personal affection or pure goodness. And friends, that certainly sounds like David in this story, and it certainly sounds like our God. Because his love is unfailing. His love is enduring. His love is loyal. His love is faithful. In fact, listen to how God is described in Exodus chapter 34 and verses 5 through 7. Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, talking about Moses there. And proclaim the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This word, hesed, it's that steadfast love. This is central to the character of God. This is what he comes to do, is to exercise his kindness to us, his steadfast love to us. His loving kindness, I think, is how the King James used to translate it. So friends, this is all about kindness, and we want to see the kindness of our covenant king as we look at David, who is the king, exercising kindness now, to this one by the name of Mephibosheth. So let's think through this in three different sections. Number one, the ruthless pursuit of covenant kindness. The ruthless pursuit of covenant kindness. Just think about this. The kindness that is bound up in God is not remaining there. It must go out and as we look through the story, as we're working our way through 2 Samuel, there are some chapters that are, that are you know, dealing with lots of things that happen in a short amount of time, and there's some chapters that, that uh, cover a lot of territory. And so David is, has, has conquered all these different places, north, east, south, west. That was last week, and he's established himself. And, and the promise has been, you must say, almost completely fulfilled by his conquests. But now, as those things have taken place, what is he doing? He's remembering a covenant. And he's going to exercise that covenant. Let's read verse one. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so here we have um, what I'm calling, first of all, a covenant question. A covenant question. Is there anyone left? Now remember, the norm for a regime or a dynasty change was a ruthless purging of all and anyone who could somehow claim your rule or your throne. Now this is borne out among the pagan nations, but it's certainly also seen in the context of Israel and Judah's kings. Let me just... Mention a couple of them, you can look at them yourselves, but Basha in 1 Kings 15, Zimri in 1 Kings 16, Jehu in 2 Kings 10 are all examples of rulers who were ruthless and how they um, killed off anyone that might be a threat to them. So the new king always needed to be assured of his position. It was, in many contexts, expected. Dale Davis summarizes it this way. He says, solidification by liquidation. Everyone knew it. Everyone believed it. Everyone practiced it. That was the norm, except in David's kingdom and David's dynasty. So David, when asking, is there anyone left of the house of Saul, is not asking the question to root that person out in order to destroy them David is asking the question because he is loyal and faithful to his covenant promises. He wants to show kindness, not be a barbarous murderer. And this covenant kindness goes back to a relationship that he had with Jonathan, Saul's son, in 1 Samuel 20. David and Jonathan... Had been, had become covenant friends. Jonathan being the uh, uh, sorry, yeah, Jonathan being the older by maybe about fifteen or so years, but they were knit together in life. They were knit together in their thinking. They were knit together in their militaristic pursuits. But when both David and Jonathan being these covenant friends, understood that Jonathan's father Saul was was seeking David's life and was going to continue to do that, they gathered together, and Jonathan and David renew this covenant. And this is what we find in 1 Samuel 20 in verse 15. This is Jonathan speaking. And so, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, Jonathan says when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So, so do not cut off your steadfast love, your chesed. Don't cut it off from my house. And then if you go to 2 Samuel 20 and verse 42... We find this, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring. So there was a commitment with each other that steadfast love would be granted to both of their families. And David now, although he is king and although most of Saul's family has been Killed off not by David, but by either the Philistines or um, the internal things that took place with the death of Ishbosheth, who was um, Mephibosheth's uncle. Um, he is now going back to this promise that he he's made, and he is wanting to make sure that he carries it out. So there's there are two covenants that are governing uh, this section and governing David at this moment. Covenant number one is the covenant that God had made with David, that he would raise up a descendant who would be king. And so David is doing what he's supposed to be doing by being faithful to that covenant. But now we also have a covenant that David had made with Jonathan, that he would not cut off the steadfast love, this kindness from the house of Jonathan forever. So that's the covenant question, which moves then to the covenant pursuit so back to the question, is there anyone left? And David is made aware of a man by the name of Zeba. A well-to-do, in verse 10 we can see that, servant of the house of Saul, who apparently was managing one of Saul's former estates. And he's summoned to appear before the king. Now I don't know about you, but when there's been a regime change, just think through this and you are a servant to that particular regime that is now ousted, and you're summoned to the king, nah, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. Why is he asking me to come? What's going to take place? But let's read what it says in verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. So you can imagine what he's thinking as he's coming, and he comes and stands before him. We continue on. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness or the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So, the answer to David's question is yes, there is a crippled son of Jonathan left. There's an answer to that question. There is a person upon whom I can shower this loving kindness that I promised to Jonathan. Well, we've already met um, this young man in 2 Samuel 4 4. I touched on it earlier, but as Israel's opposition king, Ishbosheth, as his courage failed, um, this five-year-old boy fled, and he was being carried by a nurse. She stumbled, and not only was he crippled, but as a result of that, he became lame. He just couldn't walk. So now, 15 to 20 years later, David is interested in this son the son of Jonathan, because he wants to keep his promise. And so he wants to show kindness, the kindness of God, and if you caught that, to him. So get the point of all this. The king of Jerusalem is one who will keep his promises. In spite of the norms of the day, in spite of even the fact that in keeping his promises, he's putting himself in jeopardy, because of an opposition individual. And what does he do? Well, he is loyal to his promise, and he is loyal to a fault. Turn to Psalm 15. I want you to see this. Psalm 15. And there's a question that's asked in, in, in verse 1 of Psalm 15. O oh Lord... Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? In other words, what kind of person is worthy to take that kind of leadership? Well, One of the answers we find is in verse 4. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I want you to think about this. David had made a covenant with Jonathan, he even repeated it to Saul, and he was going to be faithful to his promise to Jonathan and to Saul, even if it meant his own harm. Even if it meant it was going to cause damage for his rule as king. And we find that fleshed out then here in Psalm 15 in verse 4, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You know what it's like. Hey, God, if you, if you just get me out of this problem, I promise I will do whatever it might be. God gets you out of the problem, you forget your promise. David makes a promise to Jonathan. He is now king. As we saw in our last chapter, David did some things in that chapter to make sure he would not see himself as the reason why the whole nation was expanding. Remember, he hamstrung horses. He was careful to take the spoils of war and dedicate it to the Lord. And even now, as he's remembering this promise He is making sure that what he is doing is that he is continuing to be faithful to the promise that he had committed to Jonathan, that he had committed to Saul, and he is going to flesh it out. He is going to ruthlessly pursue the actual exercise of that promise, and he'll do that on this young man, Mephibosheth. See, David could easily have justified and rationalized away a neglect of or a ruthless purging of any descendants of Saul. But to his own hurt, he's going to draw him in, and he's going to show him kindness. But David is one who ruthlessly pursues the kindness that he promised, and so he doesn't forget his friend. He doesn't forget the words that he said to his friend. There may be a change in fortunes. There may be a change in situation. There may be a change in the circumstances, But that doesn't cause David to adjust his covenant with Jonathan. He's ruthless to pursue it, and he swears to his own hurt. David's promise in the past fuels David's faithfulness in the present. Now, friends, I want you to think about this in the context of the kind of covenants that you have entered into. Now, think, first of all, with me about marriage when you stood face to face with that person and you said, I do, or I will, or see, or whatever it was that you said, you committed in that statement a promise, a vow. Situations change. Difficulties come. The realities of that person's character are far more on display in marriage. But are you committed to the promise that you made to that person? Those marriage vows are a covenant between two people. They don't adjust because of circumstances, they don't change because things are difficult. And it's that covenant, friends. If it's believed and held dear in the hearts of two people who are united together before the Lord, it is that covenant that keeps driving that couple to work through their problems. It's easy to look away. It's easy to see the greener grass out there. But you think if you find someone else, there aren't going to be troubles? Marriage is work. It's supposed to be work, but it's foundation Its foundation is the promise, is the covenant that's made between two people before God. All right, now here's another one, church membership. Isn't it interesting, in in the United States of America, um, there there really is this kind of like, ah, church membership. I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to make the commitment. Friends, church membership ultimately is a partnership of sheep to say, we want to unite together as sheep, to care for one another, to support one another, and to place ourselves under the leadership of elders who are going to help us to do that. There's a partnership going on. When we we bring someone into church membership, we're saying there's a covenant, there's a promise that we've made between each other so that if you're in the hospital or you have need or you're needing some counsel, we are responsible for you. And we want to care for you and we want to come alongside you. But when you say, ah, membership, uh, ah, I mean, I'll go here this Sunday and I'll go there the next Sunday, you really aren't plow. I'm part of the church. No, you're not. You're being an unfaithful follower of Christ. Because there's a responsibility to place yourself consistently under the umbrella of a local church where the realities of ministry can be carried out. It's a covenant. It's a beautiful covenant, friends. And I'm thankful for, for Gateway. I'm thankful for the people that are here that see their responsibility to the body of Christ also as recipients of that covenant as well as people who are pursuing and making sure that covenant is carried out. What about baby dedications? You say, oh, baby dedications. We're, we're talking about covenant. Remember, a baby dedication is not about the baby so much. We're not saying, here, here's this baby, focuses on the baby. I know, we have pictures up on the screen, the baby's cute. But remember, when we do a baby dedication, what do we do? We're saying, through the baby dedication, we're rejoicing with the couple who have the child, and we're saying through this baby dedication time, maybe we should change the name of it, right? But we're celebrating through this time the, the, the privilege of being a church, that is covenanting together to help raise that child for the glory of God. So that child then is seen then as our responsibility because we're a church. Okay, There's a covenant going on. The flip side of that is as a couple, if you're going through difficulties with your child, are you leaning on the church that you've covenanted with? So it goes both ways. Eldership. It is a covenant responsibility. When someone steps into the role of eldership, they are saying before God and to the church, I'm taking on the responsibility of leading the church in such a way that glorifies you and is responsible to you for the sake of the body of Christ. And so there's a covenant relationship that goes on from an elder to the flock and from an elder to God. Do we take those things seriously? The point is there are covenants in our lives. They either mean something or they don't. And sometimes those things are fleshed out even to our own hurt because it's right and because we've, by our mouth, committed ourselves to doing those particular things that we've said that we're going to do. Now, friends, that is the, this, this pursuit, this ruthless pursuit of this covenant kindness. David wants to make sure that he is going to exercise that kindness. So when we think about God's promises to us, we can see how ruthlessly complete God is with his covenant to us. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Here's Ephesians 1.3. God chose us in him, that would be Christ, before the foundation of the world. Let me just stop. If that was... Before the foundation of the world, that means that we weren't created yet, right? But we were thought of. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So now the world is created and we now exist. Is it one day God's like, oh, wait a second, yeah, there's that person there. Hmm, no. God has been ruthlessly at work carrying out his promises. He is a promise keeper, and then we go to Philippians 1.6, which kind of fleshes out even more. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When God breathes new life into you, he doesn't step away. He carries on his work until it's completed. He is ruthlessly persistent to carry out his promises to his children. That's the kind of king We have. Now notice secondly in this passage, the lavish grace of covenant kindness. The lavish grace of covenant kindness. So what might begin as a tense and dangerous encounter quickly turns to an outpouring of lavish grace. I'm going to divide it into four sections here what happens. But notice first of all, grace eagerly pursued this is Mephibosheth being summoned. It is now the identity of this grandson revealed to Saul. His name is Mephibosheth, which is hard to say if it's the first time you've ever said it. You'll get it after a while. It's not Mephibosheth, it's Mephibosheth. All right? you'll, you'll, you'll finally get there, right? But it's, a, it's a, a name that has a meaning to it. and Here's, here's the idea of this, this word from the mouth of shame. Another way um, it is understood is one who scatters shame. And The point here is to recognize that Mephibosheth's name is associated with shame. Okay, So David sends for this grandson of Saul, whose name bears shame, to come and stand before him. Verse 5, the king David sent and brought from him the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now you have to wonder, how does a cripple and lame man come and bow down before David the king who succeeded the house of Saul? I mean, this has to have been one of the most humiliating and terrifying Portrayals of anyone um, in Scripture. Think about it. He's lame, can't walk, but he's summoned to appear before the king, and he's the descendant of Saul. And we already talked about what happens with descendants. He's the only last one. So what happens? Well, what would the king say? What does this king want? Is this the end for me, he might be thinking. Is this my family's heritage now catching up with me? We have this picture of a, of a social superior with a social inferior here, and, and there's this tension in the room. And the king speaks, and David says, Mephibosheth! And notice there's an exclamation point, right? It doesn't, sound, it doesn't sound like it's you know Mephibosheth, soft. There's something like authoritarian here. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant, This is grace, friends. Grace ultimately eagerly pursued. We haven't seen it fleshed out yet, but there is this ruthless pursuit of grace, and he is now going after this person, bringing Mephibosheth now into his presence. Now we see grace lavishly bestowed. Mephibosheth is actually loved. And notice what David says to him do not fear. (laughs) Do not fear. It is not uncommon for extraordinary promises to be preceded by the words, do not fear, right? Remember the angels? Angels coming to the shepherds, angels coming to particular individuals who are all part of the gospel story. And Mephibosheth has every reason to fear, but these words would give him assurance as he now um, lays before the king of Israel. What David is about to say to Mephibosheth goes far beyond what is expected. What comes out of his mouth is, is not retribution or revenge, but grace heaped upon grace. Now, we, we need to see this. We need to see this fleshed out. Notice verse 7. Friends, this is really the heart of the text. This is where God's grace is is poured out. This is where David's grace is poured out on Mephibosheth. And David, first of all, promises protection. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. In other words, no longer are you going to be someone who is living under the roof of someone else, in the hospitality of someone else. I am bringing you in. I'm showing you kindness. Mephibosheth didn't deserve kindness. There's nothing in him that deserved kindness. But for the sake of this covenant that David made with Jonathan, I'm going to show you kindness, is what he's saying. This is unexpected grace, friends. This is unexpected kindness. This is good news. And then there's the fact that David promises provision. This is the next statement. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Remember, as we, we kind of look at this passage, what it appears is that Mephibosheth has been living in a place called Gilead, which is outside, might want to say, the, the, the normal borders of, of Israel, maybe in a place of, of safety under the care of another by the name of Machir. But now, this one who has nothing is being given the land that belonged to his father Saul. That's not talking about the whole land of Israel, but it's talking about the personal, private land of his grandfather Saul. So here's Mephibosheth moving from this place of having nothing to this place of having all sorts of property. And then David promises position. You shall eat at my table always. To eat at the king's table was the ultimate privilege And signifies the king's particular favor. There would always be a place at David's table for Mephibosheth. You see, David has promised life in his covenant to Jonathan. But David instead gives him lavish grace. He, He gives him far more than his promise required. Not just for a moment... Not just for a short period of time, but always. Mephibosheth here is adopted into David's family. So, friends, these are, these promises are an echo of another time further down the road, recorded for us in the New Testament, Luke chapter two, beginning at verse ten. And the angel said to them, "Fear not, for I behold I bring you good news." of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here here is good news. What Mephibosheth is hearing right now is good news. He's been given protection. He's been given provision. He's been given this new position. And he responds now with great humility, grace humbly received. Mephibosheth is amazed. Just notice what it says, verse 8. And he paid homage. Again, you've got to think, he came in, and it says he fell down. You have to wonder whether that expression has something to do about his condition. He didn't just bow down. He came and fell down. But now he pays homage again. In other words, he bows down once again. And he says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It is understandable that Mephibosheth found David's promise to be too hard to believe. He bows down once again. And he is overwhelmed with the kindness of David, which ultimately is the kindness of God. And he's saying to himself, and he's saying out loud, how how can this be? How can this be? to be the recipient of such grace, such kindness. In this last section, I've called grace sovereignly ordered because you know what? Mephibosheth has been given all this wealth by virtue of land, but he's in no condition to take care of it. So David not only provides the benefit of the blessing, but he also provides the means by which that blessing can be carried out and maintained. That's what we have here in verses 9 and following. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat but mephibosheth your master's grandson shall always eat at my table now ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants he had a lot of workers to help oversee and carry this out and ziba said to the king according to all that my lord the king commands his servant so will your servant do and so david here is making sure that what was given to mephibosheth could actually be carried out it could be maintained, could be stewarded. Now, a little just a little soft note here. We'll, we continue down the road in Second Samuel. Um, this this man by the name of Ziba will turn against David, um, and we just kind of put that in the back of your head. But don't let that interfere with the grace that's being lavishly poured out here. All right, this is a beautiful picture of what God is giving to this one who is undeserving of this kind of kindness. Which brings us then to this third, last little section here that I'm calling the unwavering embrace of covenant kindness. And the idea here is not necessarily one little section, although I have uh, just a few verses here. Let's just read them. But, but I want us to think about how Mephibosheth is described in this whole text. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. So we can think that Mephibosheth then was married and had a son at this point in time. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. You know, isn't it interesting? The, the narrator is wanting us to see something here. <laughs> Mephibosheth is lame. He's a cripple. Um, So what ways is Mephibosheth vividly described in this text? Um, I would say, first of all, it's not up there on the screen, but first of all, uh, his name just is associated with shame. Um, His family connection with Saul is brought up numerous times, which ultimately would mean that he is on the opposing side. Of David. He is an enemy by virtue of household. He's crippled in his feet. He's a servant or a slave. That's how he addresses the king and identifies himself. He's a dead dog, he's a worthless animal. Yet, even though all those things are true, David shows him kindness and welcomes him at his table always. Now, hear this there is nothing in Mephibosheth that caused David to pursue him with kindness. There's nothing about Mephibosheth, about his looks, about his stature, about his position. Mephibosheth is simply the recipient of David's kindness because of a covenant promise. So there's this unwavering pursuit and unwavering embrace by the king with Mephibosheth. It wasn't like David said, all right, who is this, who's this man? Who is this, this grandson of, of Saul? Bring him to me. And as Mephibosheth kind of walks in to see the king, all right, I'm doing my impersonation here, okay? He's walking in to see the king. That was more like the hunchback of Notre Dame, but that's a whole other story, right? So he's coming in as he's getting there. David doesn't say, oh, well, I'm not going to show my kindness to you. I was hoping you'd be like you know, a stud of a man. It doesn't matter. God's covenant promise is not looking at the physical condition of the man as a basis or the position of a man or a family of a man as the basis for exercising his covenant kindness. Kindness. Mephibosheth's physical condition and family connection do not hinder David from embracing him at his table. He ate always, always with David. I just continue to think on that thought, but now I want you to think about, I won't act this out, but think about his family. Can you imagine then what it would be like to come to dinner at David's house. One side of the table, you have Amnon. Next to him, you have Tamar, his half-sister, who seemingly was a very attractive young lady who would be ultimately raped by Amnon. There's Absalom, who we're told was without blemish from head to toe. He was the Christian Ronaldo of the day. That makes any sense to you. He was the handsome, you know, strapping man of the day. Then there's Joab. Joab was David's nephew, who was also the captain of David's army. So he probably was a very imposing, physically fit. I mean, if anyone had a six-pack, it was him, okay? And then along the way, there's Solomon, who probably always had these great philosophical questions that no one can answer, right? So here's this table, and then for for dinner, all these people are sitting there, and then here comes Mephibosheth, clip-clopping his way through, maybe being brought by someone, a servant, to sit at the table. You can just see the picture here. You have these, these incredibly powerful, mighty, smart, handsome, beautiful children, and you have Mephibosheth. And you get the picture here. For there is this unwavering embrace of covenant kindness. Mephibosheth is disabled but welcomed into the king's family. Now, friends, do you see see the gospel language of this text? Do, Do you see the logic of the gospel played out in the characters of this text? This is not an allegory. But this is a picture for us to see this gospel that God has for us. And we want to make sure that we see what it is that God wants us to see from this text that is for us today. So as we bring things to a close, there's two things really I want us to draw uh, our last attention to. First of all, that we are recipients of God's kindness if we are Those who have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are the recipients of this Hesed love. This is a story that is a mini story to help us understand the larger story of our redemption. What separates you? This is a question. What separates you? from that person who's sitting on the corner as you drive away today, who's holding up on a cardboard um, you know, box or a piece of cardboard that says, you know, we'll work for food or hungry or you know, whatever it might say. What separates you from that person? We don't deserve to be recipients of God's grace any more than that person. There's nothing about us it's any better in God's eyes. There's nothing about us that's more significant. What makes the difference is that God has called us out of our alienation to sit at his table. And at his table are all kinds of people. And everyone sitting at this table are all the Mephibosheths. We're all disabled. We all have the inability to do some things. How does Scripture describe us? We're poor. We're lame. We're blind. We're crippled. We're sick. We're wounded. We're weak. We're wicked. We're helpless. We're hopeless. We're dirty. We're defiled. But our only answer to our condition is the loving kindness of God. You see, we have been ruthlessly pursued. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We have been lavished upon by grace, heaped upon grace, heaped upon grace. We are embraced by God's unwavering commitment to us. We're disabled but hear this, we're adopted into his family to sit at his table with him. So we who are crippled come in as crippled sons and daughters of God. Not because of natural birth, not because of any power, that we have connections to, not of any prominence or, or position in this life, but because of his loving kindness. And we all must be willing to say that none of it is of me, but all of it is because of him. And having embraced Christ as our Savior, we are welcome to eat at his table every day where the recipients of that has said, that loving kindness. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul describes our God's kindness to us in the gospel, Ephesians chapter 2. I would encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me and see this. And I just I want I want for this word kindness to, to have such a, such a pregnant meaning as we go into these just couple of texts. Ephesians 2 and verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, you and I are the recipients of this kindness, this immeasurable, rich grace only comes to us through Jesus Christ. And then if we now read in, in, in Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3 and verses 4, Titus chapter 3 and verses 4 and following it says this, but when the, God, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, because this goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, Right. He saved us, not because of works done in us or by us in righteousness. In other nothing that we can do to contribute to this, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become, What? Heirs. That means a child with full rights. But we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, this steadfast love isn't limited to our salvation. It also impacts our sanctification. It is foundational to our sanctification, He gives us what we need so that we can live our lives as sons and daughters. Now hear this, you might say, okay, God might take a crippled person and bring them into the family so that they would be saved, but you know what, I'm constantly struggling, I constantly fail, I constantly uh, sin, and how could God continue to love me? And the answer to that question is, you're one of his children, And the fact that you continue to sin is the means by which, as a father, he brings loving discipline and care to you. So you might struggle. How could he? Why does he? If you had children, most of you do, you know what it's like to have a child. You know what it's like to be burdened over that child. And you'll do things to reach that child. God cares for us so much. But he gives us all that we need. 2 Peter 1.3, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. So friends, stand in wonder. Bow down before the Lord. Be amazed that you have been sought out by God and God's steadfast love and welcomed into God's family as a son or as a daughter. This is the picture painted for us in 2 Samuel 9. And this picture is given to us to encourage us if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you get to enjoy fellowship with him every day. Every day. It's not like Mephibosheth said, you know, once a week you can come by and depending on what we're cooking, you can come in. No, he's saying you can come and sit at my table always. Always, always, always. And we can come and we can fellowship with Christ always, always, always. Not only is it there to encourage us, it's there to rebuke us because we can so easily be so proud and so full of ourselves rather than giving glory to God. Remember who you really are. I want to say crippled. Remember who you have become because of Christ. You are crippled but declared righteous, covered in the righteousness of Christ. Benefit from it. Live out of it. Enjoy it. Know it. Study it. It's here to encourage us. It's here to rebuke us. It's here to challenge us to make the most of our privileges. And friends, that's the fact that that, that we are the recipients of God's kindness. But we also need to think about the fact that we are also a reflection of God's kindness. You should also notice in this passage that David here is the recipient of God's kindness, and David is a reflection of God's kindness in his kindness now given to Mephibosheth. He talked about that he may show kindness to him, and then he talks about that he may show the kindness of God to him. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? And here's the answer, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To love hesed, to to love this, this loving kindness, this steadfast love, the kind of love that should be present among believers, the kind of love that flows out of what God has done for you so that you then in turn will exercise it to those that you know. President William McKinley served our country as president from 1897 to 1901, and during his campaigns, he was challenged by an opposing reporter, and he was like one of these, like a chihuahua on him, you know, just constantly, always there always asking questions and always writing articles in the newspaper against his campaign and really just kind of distorting things and just painting him in bad light. Uh, This particular campaign went on um, for quite a while, and the weather turned sour in the midst of this thing and got really, really cold. And this is back in the days when uh, people rode around in carriages and stuff like that. And so uh, president-elect or uh, gunning for president McKinley is in the carriage... And he is warm because he's in the carriage. And this reporter is sitting outside and he's cold. He is freezing because he didn't come prepared for the day is how the story unfolds. And so McKinley invites him to join him inside the carriage with him. He could have just said, you know what? This is what you deserve. You're going to say those bad things about me? You can sit out there. I mean, get some cold water and throw it on you. You know how we think, right? But instead of that, even though he knew that this guy was a thorn in his flesh, he says, come and sit with me. And the reporter said, listen, you know I'm the opposition. He's like, I don't don't care. You're cold. Come and sit with me in the warmth of this carriage. Now, I'm not going to give you a false story that this reporter, you know, turned sides and started to write for McKinley and all that kind of stuff. No, he continued to write articles that were opposed to McKinley, but in those articles, he didn't write anything that was unfair or unbiased, or I should say anything that was unfair or biased. He treated him with respect, and the point here is this, that that kindness is something that God has placed in us that flows out of the gospel, and it's a kindness that is a means by which we live our lives for his glory in a practical way. So let's just walk our way through a number of areas in life where we need to exercise kindness. First of all, are you kind in your marriage? What, how did you speak to your spouse? How do you treat your spouse? And when your spouse treats you in an unkind way, does that somehow give you the thinking and the feeling that you can turn around and be unkind back and feel justified that it's okay? Kindness should just be part of who we are as God's people. But how is that kindness being fleshed out in your marriage? What about kindness in your family? Would your children say if they were asked, is your mom or is your dad a kind person? How would they respond? Oh, thankfully, you have little ones that can't respond, right? Um, but how, how would they respond? Do they say, you know what? Mom's really kind. Dad's really kind. Or no. <laughs> well, Why are you even asking the question? I'm going to get myself in trouble with that question, right? It could be that too. How do you speak to your children? How do you treat your parents? And I'm not just speaking to some of the young people here. I'm speaking to some of those that that are my age who have older parents, obviously. How do you treat your parents? Because that is a reflection of how your kids are going to treat you. Do you treat them with kindness? Kindness. Or is it sarcasm? Is it duty? It's just like, oh man, I have to go. Or is there a gentleness and a kindness that goes along with it? Is kindness a part of your household DNA? What about kindness with your neighbors? Or do you just ignore your neighbors? Is that right? That's what fences are for, so you can ignore one another, right? Or do you do kind things for them? Do you look out for them? If their garage door is open, and it's 11 o'clock at night, and you're coming back, do you go knock on their door? I know it's kind of weird and awkward at 11 o'clock at night, but yeah, your garage door is open, and all your stuff is being seen, and anyone can come, You know, is there kindness there? What if all their political signs in their lawn are different than the ones that are in yours? Are you still kind? Or do you stick your political signs in front of theirs in their yard? What have you done recently that demonstrates your kindness to your neighbors? Now, we, we expect these things, all right? yes, in the family, yes, in marriage, but now we're pushing a little bit. What are you doing in kindness to those that God has, in his providence, put around where you live? What about kindness with your coworkers? And probably in some workplace environments, kindness can be seen as a weakness. (laughs) Oh, you're being kind. Oh, no, he's not one of them, you know. But remember, it's not your work culture that is most important, it is kingdom culture that is most important. And that is a culture where you seek to glorify God, even if the culture in which you live does not want it. You're still kind. What about kindness with those uh, with whom you disagree, especially like right now in a, in a political climate where, where we're so quick to say, well, well, I support or I don't and this, that, and, and we, we polarize so quickly rather than being able to talk about maybe a, a, an opinion or a thought that we have and to do it in kindness, in graciousness. It's hard to be kind to those who stand in opposition to the things that you firmly believe political party affiliation, team sports loyalty, theological division. The, you know, there will be Arminians in heaven. Okay? Some, but there will be Arminians, no. You, you get the point. The point is that we, we need to believe our theology strongly but let's be kind with what we believe. Let's be kind. Relational conflict. See, your your differences don't need to be the open door to being unkind. They should be the opportunities to give what is most unexpected a hesed kind of love. Kindness. So is there someone that you know that you should show loving kindness too. Well, certainly today it's your mom, right? I would encourage you after this morning's sermon, it's probably a good thing to do. Um, but is there someone that maybe God has put on your heart, as, as, as we've been working through this, so we've been talking about this, it's like this, you know, the Holy Spirit's put this picture right in the front of your head, and you're like, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah, oh, I've got to deal with this person, all right? Seek them out, plan a meeting, make a phone call, send an email or a text, write a card, pray for them, bake them cookies, do something kind. God calls us to live as light and God calls us to exercise good deeds that flow out of the gospel. Now just as we close today, I want to read for us what we started with at the beginning of the service and I realized because it was Mother's Day, a lot of you weren't here because um, the men were dragging and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but we want to repeat it again here this morning, okay? Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Just get your Bibles in turn. Let's look at this. and I want you to see. I'm going to read it. So all I'm going to do. I just want you to see how 2 Samuel 9 and Ephesians 1 make sense together. Beginning at verse 3. until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You, just, you see the components there. He seeks us out. He welcomes us in. He adopts us as children. He lavishes us with grace. He gives us an inheritance. He maintains that inheritance. Friends, we, who are his children, are truly blessed. Blessed. Is there anyone, is there anyone still out there? Lord, help us today to consider the full weight of the beauty and the magnificence of being taken as blind, crippled enemies of yours and welcomed to feast at your table simply as the result of your promised, steadfast love. There was nothing in in us that somehow sparked a reason for this loving kindness, but Lord, that loving kindness was the source from which we have been the recipients of your grace. Lord, it is truly amazing We are humbled and yet thankful. And Lord, we still stumble as we come to bow down before you. And yet, Lord, you continue to love us in an unwavering way. We are of most people thoroughly and totally blessed because of your kindness to us. Now, Lord, help us to reflect that kindness as we live our lives for your glory. We ask this in your precious name.